Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Dr. James Lansweiler coming to you live from the WWDNYK studios in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. There's so much going on uh, in, in the United States, so much going on around the world that, um, you know, we're, we're really super lucky to have our guest, uh, Robert Kirk, uh, with Alliance uh, Natural Health. And uh, welcome, Rob, to Unbreaking Science. Um, great to be with you, Jack. Um, fantastic as always. Been following your work for years and um, you've been... Uh, doing incredible work. And it seems that to some degree, there are a few of us who are actually doing similar work in different parts of, of the world. Absolutely. So it's really interesting to compare and contrast the experience about what people are seeing and doing in the UK versus what's happening in the United States. What do you see there in the UK? I wanted to ask you in terms of uh, 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 allopathic medical doctors miscoding patients uh, for COVID-19. They clearly don't have COVID-19, but uh, are there financial incentives in place like there are here uh, for, for COVID-19 deaths and cases? I, I, there aren't financial incentives. I think, I think in, the, in the UK there is, because we've got the 28-day count, I mean, we've been involved in a number of cases in which we've seen some extraordinary things happening um, to the data um, and, and the pressure that happens at the coroner's office, the pressure that um, pathologists are put under, um, and the way in which the data that is finally left in the pathology report does not fit any of the circumstances that, that, that are going on. It does seem that there is a, um, you, we've recently had a, um, um, a, uh, an undertaker that was actually an undertaker that was used by the BBC right at the very start. He actually has reported the fact that um, he saw the first evidence of what appears to be COVID in, in the UK in late November, 2019. So Rob, you're a big, big thinker and there's some big, big questions, right? So one of the things I've, I've recently done is I've written an article responding to uh, uh, Dr. Unides uh, who, you know, is kind of Pollyannish in his take on what's happened to science. And I reminded him, science is fine, right? right? Science will survive COVID-19. There may be few people practicing it, but science itself is a, a staged process. Um, but uh, over the 18 months that we have here, you, you know, you have some thoughts on uh, science as we understand it and people's relationship to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think what's happened is is that it's 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 reached the sort of the 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 center fold of everyone's lives, and and it's been converted from true science to to scientism, and it now is deeply integrated into politics. So you know, it's not unusual to be listening to a radio broadcast from. Um, a leading scientist. I was listening to one just a couple of days ago. And then when it came to the key question around exactly what was the nature of the boosters and when were they going to be released and, you know, what time in the um, fourth wave would be optimal to be able to manage it and move towards increased herd immunity. Amazingly, he turned around and said, well, that will be a decision for the politicians. <laughs> kind of crazy. Well, so he brought up boosters, so... Uh, it'd be nice to have had some studies on boosters uh, before we decided that they're uh, necessary and good. Apparently, putting policy before science then leads 
to the pressure for scientists to make their science fit the policy. And that is absolutely not science. And that's why I told Unides in this article, please don't, don't confuse what we're doing with, with what they're doing, right? Scientists will, will consistently come to the proper conclusion given the right tools and then policy and, and drop when necessary law, but very, very rarely, but science will determine reality and then medicine and policy should follow suit, not the other way around. So evolutionary biologists, uh, I'm surprised at how silent they have been over these expectations. Maybe they don't realize that uh, other evolutionary biologists, that when you test positive for PCR, if you in fact have the virus in your body and you're told to go home and sicken in place, that you're going to become an incubator for virus. Maybe they haven't made the connection that that medical practice, that public health says that people have to be sick enough to come to the emergency room, that that's where the variants came from by far and large. And now that we have this complex adaptive landscape of, um, I'm sorry, now that we have a very simple adaptive landscape where the spike proteins merely has to avoid uh, the, uh, the vaccine, uh, right? So the 50 other antigen potentialities that are there are not really being addressed sufficiently by any approach to immunity. If we're just talking about the spike protein vaccines, um, then, then what we expect is what we're seeing, very, very rapid evolution of the spike protein away from the vaccine. And that's why we get low efficacy. It's, it's, that's really evolution 101, right? So that's not complex. Um, the, well, the, the idea that you can assign liability to the origin and say, oh, this is what's going to happen in the future if you don't vaccinate, you're going to become a problem. It, 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 right? it, it ignores natural immunity. It ignores the fact that treatments also keep viremia down. Treatments are very effective at keeping viremia down. But I, I love your, your approach that we need to come at this with um, all of our tools in our toolkit understand the complexity of it, address the complexity of it. When you're talking about agriculture, right, you wanna be able to do soil amendments. You wanna make sure your mycorrhizae are healthy. You wanna be sure that you have uh, plants that work well with each other. And you probably want some predation around and you know, you, you want, like I mean, you said, multiple you, trophic you layers. Want, you wanna have your, your, your multiple layers of protection. I mean, I, the right. thing I'm always stunned about is that is the lack of, um, focus on the way in which the innate immune system is really modifiable. I mean, we, we saw very, very early on in Italy a very clear relationship between circulating vitamin D status and, and people having bad outcomes. And it, it seems that, that that vitamin D deficiency is, um, you know, one of the factors that, that's critical to that is, is how your natural killer cells are going to work, how your dendritic cells are going to work. And we've, you know, we've had this complete focus on, on the humoral response of the adaptive immune system, what antibodies are doing. And uh, at the same time, we, we, if you look at the lack of research and what's happening in terms of the um, cell-mediated part of the, of the adaptive immune system, again, what's happening with cross-reactivity, um, it, it's it's extraordinary given how much is known now about you know the immune response and the complexity of it and the fact that we've had this huge evolutionary history of exposure to coronaviruses. Um, uh, 
so so yes that's why it is time for people to take the issue into their own hands when we see these um, uh, differences between how you envision the world could be how I envision the world you know I was when I was at the University of Pittsburgh one of the last projects that I wanted to help create was the Institute for Personalized Medicine. And I celebrated the fact that we could actually, you know, do differential treatment of breast cancer patients. You know, we could actually, with high precision, we could determine which chemotherapy was actually going to work. There's a company in Pittsburgh, I had my sister, uh, oncologist, send the tumor there to get tested against a panel of 21 different chemotherapy agents. And they found three of them that worked. The, the personalized medicine future is still possible. People just have to realize that public health is not interested in you in person, as a person. They're not, they're interested in the public, you're exactly right. And um, so I was surprised, for instance, when A. Prasad, who is from MedPage Today, and he's got he's did an excellent, excellent discussion on the future of science and what's happening. Uh, I was surprised with kind of how cavalier he was about there's this kind of normal background rate of vaccine injury, as if even he, who's skeptical of you know what's happening now, accepts a background rate of vaccine injury when there are clear predictors of who might develop autoimmunity from vaccine, who might die from vaccine, and, and you know we can do the prediction science to say there's a red flag on the screen here. Sorry to the patient. Sorry, your your child can't have this vaccine. They're contraindicated. It takes no time and no effort. But it, it affects the bottom line in terms of vaccine consumption, of vaccine, right? And, um, and so what are we to do, Rob? How do we change well, that, society? Yeah, I, I think what's beginning to happen now, I mean, we've, we've seen it with, with the UK. If you look at the fact that they are pushing for a COVID pass, which is, um, which is already available, um, but essentially there's a process of delegation in which governments are passing the buck to institutions and private companies who generally know a lot less about the science and the, the, the rationale behind it. Um, so if you look at the small print for the COVID pass, what it says is that um, you know, uh, companies and institutions that want to use it are welcome to use it, um, and, um, but they should also respect wait for it, self-declared exemptions. Um, and um, so they then give some possible reasons people are immunocompromised, but it doesn't discount yeah. someone who um, is concerned about fertility issues, um, you know, someone who's got an autoimmune profile, for example. So, um, and then most importantly, they also say, and what you mustn't do is breach the Equalities Act of 2010, which is um, essentially the, the same um, legislation exists in every other jurisdiction because it's principles in the UN Charter of Human Rights. And, um, you know, it, it, it points to the fact that there is already recognition of the fact that a structure in which you um, essentially allow different rights for people according to their vaccination status creates, you know, a, a form of apartheid in society. And that form of apartheid, just like racial apartheid in South Africa, this form of medical apartheid um, will be a breach. And, and I think you and I both recognize that it will be a matter of time. That's why we're, as scientists, we're 
both working with the courts. Um, we know that in time, it's for people like us to start building cases and building precedents so that the, this, this idea of, you know, when did we ever take someone's, when, when we know that the so-called vaccine and apologies for calling it a so-called vaccine because it's not working in the way as a typical vaccine, it, it is um, a gene therapy treatment. But yeah. when did we ever make so many decisions about the rights and freedoms according to a medical choice that someone has taken? I mean, it, it hasn't happened before. Um, and uh, the, the effects are, are, are profound. And um, what is fascinating as a result of it, there is a cooperative movement, again, that we're involved with, um, that is developing around the world that is effectively trying to look after the unmet needs of unvaccinated populations. And within those unvaccinated populations are people who have, an awful lot of them have a real serious history with autoimmune disease. So when they heard about the risk of thromboembolic events and the publicity around VIP, they said, my goodness, um, this, is, this is not for me, you know, particularly if they're younger people, but then they get discriminated as a result of that. So, um, and then in addition to that, uh, people who were sending their kids to school now are fearful given the pressure that young people are under, 12 to 15 year olds are under to be vaccinated. And in the UK, we've got a piece of um, case law um, called Gillick. It was, it was based on a, a 15 year old girl who decided to, uh, go to her doctor and she was given um, contraception, prescribed contraception, contraceptive pill by her doctor. And her mother took the doctor to court and lost and created the Gillick precedence, what we call Gillick competence. And what it does is allow um, people under the age of 16 to effectively have their own medical consent, even if that doesn't conform with parental consent. And they are using openly Gillick competence as a mechanism. So you bring your kids to school, it'll suddenly be vaccination day and irrespective of what the parents you know, think. So there is a case that's just launched that we've been um, involved with that is um, challenging that, saying that, guys, the complexity of vaccine science and risk and benefit is not the same as knowing whether you take a contraceptive pill and if you engage in um, intercourse, you will or won't um, run the risk of getting pregnant. It is an infinitely more complex situation that not even, um, you know, if you like, the, the, the best scientists in the world can decide between themselves. So yeah. the uncertainty, I mean, th th this is something, again, that frustrates me as a, as a scientist, I'm sure it does you, is the um, lack of tolerance that people seem to have for uncertainty. You know, there, there is so much uncertainty with the strategies, and yet we keep on given, being given this sort of black and white binary style information from the mainstream, from the health authorities, um, and there's never a mere culprit. Uncertainty is how we learn. You cannot learn without uncertainty. If you biased everything to the point where you actually believe fallacy. You will never learn unless you 
consume uncertainty and use it, then knowing how to use uncertainty leads us to a safety margin of how wrong we might be. It's so central to science, so central to understanding everything. And, and you know, there's this thought that comes to me, speaking with you, Rob, that if public health is, is successful in homogenizing allopathic medicine, which they're well underway now, they will, through evolutionary pressures over time, homogenize humanity, right? The people with autoimmunity who will not only develop serious COVID, vaccinated or not, the people with prior autoimmunity who are likely to have serious adverse events from vaccines, which are chronic, will have a higher mortality rate. There's actual selection pressure. It's hard selection at the fetal level right now with fetal mortality for vaccines. That's probably gonna get me banned from social media for saying that, but I know the science. So before social media censors, before you ban me or close my account, understand that the CDC presented data of a 5,000 something percent increase. It was uh, Professor uh, Tom Shimabukuro. He presented data to the public. Now he didn't put it on the screen and tell ASAP about it, but there's a record of him presenting. And when they, they stopped studying fetal mortality, they stopped it and they only studied maternal outcomes. So watch that. When you look at a, oh, vaccines, vaccination during pregnancy is safe. Look at, they're only looking at maternal health. They're not looking at the, 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 the spontaneous abortion rate. Well, there's news coming on spontaneous abortion rate data from COVID-19. I can't go into it, it's under peer review. It's close to be accepted, I think. So we'll see what the third reviewer has to say. Um, but you know, if, if they're successful in taking evolution of humanity by the horns, I would simply say no, because no one should have that kind of control. I wouldn't trust myself with that kind of control. I wouldn't trust you, Rob, you're a great guy, but sorry, you shouldn't have the ultimate say over the direction of human evolution. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so we're, we're fighting for not just our personal rights and our sovereignty, but we're fighting for the future pattern, the future adaptive landscape upon which humanity must evolve. And uh, if I have any say over it, what I'd like is to leave some random chance to that, where let humanity explore an adaptive landscape and you know, let's not use technology and control our own evolution to the point where, oh, we're all automatons like they want us to be. We're all obedient. We're less susceptible to aluminum toxicity. We can handle thimerosal better. What does that do to other parts of our evolution? What about those people that have to suffer from these consequences where they can't reproduce? It is a fascinating um, issue because it, it does bring us back to this transhumanism question, but it also um, reminds us that we shouldn't forget about the evolutionary leaps that, that humans have probably already undergone and other species may have as well. And the fact that it's not improbable that, that there has been interference in the human genome previously, which might explain you know, why the Egyptians or the Aztecs or the Mayans or, um, were so advanced. Um, I mean, I, I find myself driving past Stonehenge um, quite regularly. I, I will do it this weekend again. And, um, you know, it is difficult to contemplate that the rocks of, the, of that size were dragged over logs. They, they have worked out that the rocks must have originated in Wales but then to have dragged them to this particular point in which the constellations and the sun um, can be so beautifully aligned 
um, during the solstice and to have got all of that right um, 5,000 years ago without any technological assistance is, is a bit of a stretch. Um, and, you know, you can look at any of these sophisticated developments. So um, it may be that we're at the cusp of one of those kind of major leaps in evolution. Um, the, the difficulty is that we do it, you know, if, if there was any extraterrestrial, if you like, advanced life forms involved, I just get the sense that they may have had a deeper understanding <laughs> of what was going on. It, it, is, yeah. it is, at the moment, the, the difficulty I have with the technological approach is that there is no confidence that there is a deep-seated knowledge of the consequences of the application of that technology. So, you know, you, you swap out those uridines and you bung in the pseudouridines. What, what, what is, you have an advantage in the sense that the spike protein is more robust and it's more available to the immune system because you, you're going, hey, I, want, I don't want to have waning immunity. I want to have a longer living immunity. Um, but the whole thing is driven by the fact that what really happens is you get a patent on it. And the minute you've got a patent on it and you're getting a human body to produce that patented genetic sequence, you are in exactly the same place that I found myself 25 years ago, being one of the first scientists. I was at Imperial College, um, Jeff Wager, senior professor, and I, when I was doing my PhD, we wrote a paper after um, the first outdoor experiment on any GMO plant, on oilseed rape, was conducted by colleagues of ours in open fields and our, at our field site in the UK. It was the first outdoor test ever. And, um, you know, we, we, we said, you know, we have an issue with the fact that they're confident that a 250 meter barrier is sufficient. So if any of these get left behind and go to seed, you know, the pollen couldn't possibly move more than 250. So Jeff and I, you know, were very familiar with, with the aerial plankton and saying, geez, 250 meters, what do you mean? This stuff goes up into the jet stream and moves across continents and then drops down, you know, in rainfall anywhere else. And, and of course, it, it took 10, 15 years before people really realized the consequences of genetic drift and, you know, around GMOs. Um, and um, we're and now- then, then they were allowed to blame the victim, right? Correct. In the United Correct. States, at least, if, you, if you're caught growing infiltrated, polluted, genetically polluted crop, you have to pay a royalty to the polluter. How exactly. backward is that? So, so, so tell, me, tell me, Jack, using that precedent, right. what happens to someone where their reverse transcriptase and integrase has, has done its thing and they've you know, essentially got, got this, this new pseudouridine sequence into their cells, possibly into their ovaries, mm -hmm. so that they become infertile. We've got 26 peptide sequences um, that are that are common to the spike protein in the human genome. Um, so um, you know there is a. I mean, we we, we published a, a a very detailed report with um, our colleague Jeannie Drisco from the University of Kansas, 
um, shortly after the 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 VIT um, declaration, you know, recognition yep. after AstraZeneca and looking at all the uh, blood clot problems, um, flagging the fact that this is a major signal for people with an autoimmune background. And um, you know, if you look at the rise of autoimmunity, it's the the great unsung, you know, epidemic of our of our era. Um, over 80 autoimmune diseases, and they're just something in the environment, something in our gene expression is causing these autoimmune problems to, to grow at an unprecedented rate. So we need to be really careful about environmental signals. So something like, um, you know, the, the, the Salk Institute work that, that has really demonstrated the cytotoxicity of the spike protein to me is a, is a massively important body of work. And I keep on being deeply disappointed yet unsurprised by fact checkers who have no real scientific background who say it is a lie to suggest that the spike protein is cytotoxic. Yeah, absolutely. So for people that don't know that, is that, is that the study that showed that the spike protein insinuates itself between heart muscles? Heart muscles? Right. And right. so how can you have a properly beating heart if we know that the signal cascade over the throughout the heart muscles, not only has to follow neurological, but it also will have an electrochemical gradient change from cell to cell as the cell itself actually contracts. Well, if, if they leak and they have two nuclei into the cell, then you're gonna get inflammation. The cells are gonna die. You're gonna get inflammation, you're gonna get myocarditis. Um, yeah, that's what, that was my study in April. Yeah, my, my study that, in that, April. That was, a, that was actually another study. This okay. is the one where, where, they, where they essentially genetically modified hamster cells to produce just the spike protein so they could measure yeah, yeah, okay. the genetically, the, the effects of the genetically engineered spike protein on its own without the viral. Oh, as a signal, as a, as a yeah, signal. Yeah, as a signal. Yeah. And they, and they showed that it has very clear. In fact, they showed that the, the vascular effects, they, they argued that, that this means we cannot really classify SARS-CoV-2 as a respiratory virus. It well, is let's, respiratory. Ed, let's educate the fact checkers for this video. If you send me that link, then we'll put it in the, when we distribute the video, we'll distribute okay. it as well. But you know, back, back to the aliens, if you might, that's a big topic to bring up, right? Just oh, by the way, let's think about, <laughs> uh, let's think about uh, transgalactic uh, or even within galactic uh, trans solar system travel. Mm -hmm. but. Um, so, yeah, we don't know the deep, deep, deep history of humanity. We don't know from 500,000 years to present exactly what happened on this planet. And, and there are cultures and traditions of ancient, highly technological civilizations that uh, surpass our own, that, that we've forgotten histories. Um, and that brings to mind, you know, what we're doing right now, of course, is called hubris. And it's what we did with the, the nuclear bombs. It's what we've done with nuclear energy. It's what we're doing with pesticides, the technology. Simply because we can control it doesn't mean that we should. And you know, E.O. Wilson years ago said that the real problem of humanity is the following. We have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. And it's a matter of trust. If you are trusting public health officials that you are and you individually are going to be just a-okay following what they have to say, that you belong to a particular category of people who have not studied public health and science enough. And I'm sorry to say that. I don't need to condescend anyone because I'm, I'm not a, I'm, this, this is not a, a field of authority. This is a, a, a call to action. Get educated as educated as you possibly can. 
Um, and uh, uh, the, uh, the, the reality that, that we have to trust each other at some point in time, when you go to the store, you have to trust that the product that you buy at the store is, 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 is what, you, what the person that runs the, the grocery shop says it is, that it's not gone bad and it's going to poison you. You have some amount of trust in, in buying that, purchasing that product, but this is your life. This is your individual life. This is your future. This is your genetic progeny, your, your, your future uh, prosperity of, of who you are as a family. And to put this in the hands of people that have made so many rapid decisions based on so little information that have such huge impact. And now they just, they want to mandate it for the workplace. I'm afraid that's another bad decision that's made in a rushed manner by politicians that, that, that will turn out to be incredibly costly to the rest of society, but no cost to allopathy, no cost to public health. Talk about personal choice in the United States or the UK. Our countries with personal choice is completely disallowed. People that are socialized and taught from day one, the state is, you answer to the state, you are the state, the state is you, don't go, if you do something that's going to hurt someone else, you're going to be held accountable. And we're going to tell you, not, not collectively, but we're going to tell you from the top down what it means to hurt someone else, right? Um, and, and so we have this statist approach towards how the world is going to be run in the future. Think about that, right? And, and then we have the authoritarian regime of public health, and it seems that you, you mentioned earlier, Klaus and his, uh, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy, mm -hmm. as he's standing in his uh, Venusian spacesuit or whatever the hell it was he was wearing. But, you know, these, there's a strange thing that's happening with liberal democracies. And the liberal, even in the United States, the huge disparity between Texas and, say, uh, Seattle, Washington, Portland, and, and, and where, where there seems to be this idea that we need to make a bigger, a, a large government as powerful as possible because we need to be in control. And there seems to be a blind side to the fact that you are not in control of a large government. You may think you're in control of a large government, but you are ultimately not the one that's in control of that. So what's driving this substitution of liberal democracies for more authoritarian regimes, which is the, kind of the next phase of, you know, that, that mentality. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And what's, what's the end game of these people? That yeah, want I, I mean, I, I think it is um, really this, this tension that exists between a, a kind of centralized control system versus a decentralized control system. And, um, and I think, um, you know, if you look at it politically, what we see is a, a centralized control system um, works well on the condition that you don't cause, you know, so much collateral damage to the organisms or the, the people you're controlling that, that, that eventually the, the masses that have, that have the numbers bite back. And that's that's when revolutions occur. So we see this sort of pattern whenever we've had really, really uh, uh, very uh, dictatorial um, and authoritarian governments. It's just a matter of time before there is a revolution. Is there a totalitarian movement? Is where's is it that's taking over Western liberal democracies? And where is it coming from? It can't be well, spontaneous I, I, and I, autonomous I, I, from within. 
Yeah, I, I, I do think that, that everything does point loosely to the, the Davos set, um, you know, that have been circulating around Klaus Schwab, you know, uh, clearly the, the, the system, when you, when you look at his COVID-19 Great Reset book that he got out very swiftly after WHO, I think it came out in June last year, didn't it? Um, it's a must read. Um, but, um, you know, you, if you look at what he's saying about social contracts, that, that really is, is essentially a system that's, that's not dissimilar to the kind of social contract that someone in China subscribed to if they're going to play with the Communist Party of China um, and, and not go against it. And um, essentially, you, you are an ant and you're a member of the ant colony and you're working for the greater good. Um, but but that centralized approach, um, I don't think is has any resilience to it. It doesn't have um, it can't flex, you know, particularly with the instability that exists in the world today. It and, gives you um, a, an illusion of order and control, and you're, you're happy to get in line. However, the resilience word that you just mentioned is super key. So the the, the parallelization of processes, redundancy, alternatives. You know, if there's a disaster that befalls China, a natural disaster, um, yeah, people fall into place. The government tells you to be here. If not, you lose your apartment, you lose your home, whatever. You know, there's consequences. But, uh, and it's, it's like a one-to-one -one correspondence. And so they, they'd be able to react more quickly, I suppose. But they, they don't have to go through any political shenanigans. Uh, are you for or against earthquake, you know, uh, relief. <laughs> Do we have to have that conversation, please, right? But but that's not the disasters that would be the undoing of a society like that. The ones that would be the undoing of a society like that are a slow, gradual decay over time to that's almost invisible to the people who are the ultimate victims of this. And I know so many thousands of people who are vaccine injured and to see allopathic medicine accept them as collateral damage. This is a baseline rate of vaccine injury. It's just the normal baseline rate. And then he pointed to Vinay Prasad pointed out, look how many more reports there are for COVID. What do you mean a normal baseline rate? Why is that acceptable? Have we been so blinded to what we're doing to each other? Once they form the ideology, the other thing they do is, is create very consciously in groups and out groups. So again, moving to our current scenario, the in-group is definitely the pro-lockdown, pro-authoritarian, pro-vaccination is the solution group. Right. So if you want to play any other game, you're in an out-group. And, and fascinatingly, when you look at this kind of approach that's been used on human beings by authoritarian regimes over and over again the outgroups always have it right yeah so so mm -hmm. in the long term the outgroup is shown to be right and so you know people instead of being fearful about not being in the in-group they should you know feel empowered about being a member of the outgroup and and for me within that context that's really what the enough movement is about because it's saying hey we know because of our views, you know, that they've tried to, to make sure that everyone in the most distasteful out group are the anti-vaxxers, you know, 
the extraordinary thing is that so many people who've been thrown into that camp are parents of people who've got vaccine injured children, that people who were massively in support of vaccination. I mean, it's a very, very um, poor label that does nothing to reflect the diversity of, of people within within that group or to show the complexity of the issue. So there's, you've got your ex-vaxxers, right? So you have your hardcore, hardline anti-vaxxers who've never vaccinated. You have your ex-vaxxers. You have yeah. your, you know, people who might vaccinate once in a while, but only the eight, not everything but except for the flu or everything except for the HPV. And that entire continuum I call the vaccine risk aware continuum. That yeah. includes the marketing department at Merck, right? Yeah. So they're, they're that much aware of the vaccine risk. And then vaccine risk awareness increases the farther you go, right? So if you've lost your child to death from vaccine, there's nothing more important in this entire world to you to make sure that no other parent loses their child because you cannot bear to take another breath on this planet knowing that you made the decision to give your child that poison. Correct. It's poison to them. So exactly. vaccine risk awareness spans the entire spectrum of almost to, to the trolls on the internet all the way down. So it really is humanity uh, this in-group, out-group manipulation that they want to put together, the, right? It is a poor label. It's a very, very bad label. And vaccine risk aware as a as a movement that that, that, that phrase came about about 2017. It's really taken off. But the the, the second movement that that we're part of that's also really important is the coming together of um, scientists and doctors who who have a view that covers all of these issues from natural immunity to delivering the best pro possible protocols, um, you know, what, what we might describe as evidence-based practice, because that's the only thing we can use in this emergency. So, so um, you know, all the doctors, for example, that, that have seen virtually no mortality from severe COVID after administering ivermectin plus, you know, a number of you know uh, corticosteroids and antibiotics and other nutrients. Um, why why have they had their YouTube accounts shut down? Why have testimonies they've made in you know the Senate no longer available for public viewing on YouTube? It doesn't really make any sense. Um, Pierre Corey has been censored left, right, and centre. Um, Tessa Laurie has been censored left, right. We we've had our our YouTube account removed. Um, and um, all we've ever done is, is it's, you know, the remarkable thing is the first strike we ever got was when we were one of the first people to publicize Klaus Schwab's Great Reset. So we, we wrote an article that almost exclusively used excerpts from Klaus Schwab's own book, but because we're not the World Economic Forum, yeah. Yeah. We, we got a strike. Let's close out just talking about the Alliance for Natural Health, if you don't mind. I'm going to bring up the website so people can see what we're talking about. What is the Alliance for Natural Health and why should people uh, want that in their lives right now? So we, we are an alliance of, of scientists, doctors, lawyers, um, and we have also companies and, and uh, probably more than any other number, we have citizens um, from around the world. So we, we've kind of... Um, been a free-flowing, if you like, Greenpeace-type model. We've been working our nuts off now for nearly 20 years. Um, and if you like, the most fundamental kind of goal 
um, has been to how we can achieve uh, a process of managing human health by working with nature rather than against it and applying, if you like, sustainability principles. It struck me when I um, decided to, to not accept a permanent position at Imperial College because I was concerned about the, um, the economic and political system that was funding research that I already had a pretty bad taste from. I, I could see the corporatization of research. I decided to set up um, ANH, the Alliance for Natural Health, as a, a vehicle for my work to do what we call good science and good law. So, um, and, and it came really at a time when there was a real concern that, that the uh, European regulators were going to ban many natural sources of nutrients. So if you were concentrating a form of uh, um, vitamin that came from a natural source, you're going to be illegal. You could only use something that came out of a Merck catalogue. Um, so I remember I, I was still working at Imperial College when I had people in that sector coming to me because I know a lot about food. And I looked at the permitted list that they were planning to, to mandate. And I said, well, none of this occurs in nature. And they said, well, it's fascinating you should say that because we only use products sourced from nature. Um, and um, that was the basis that we ended up taking a legal action um, to the High Court in London. We got expedited to the European Court um, and um, we also created a major swing in the European Parliament. So that sort of kicked us off. And then through that time, we've been really um, working in a very diverse range of areas um, from um, finding better ways of um, scientifically uh, looking at risk and benefit when it comes to micronutrients, because they're also banning micronutrients um, effectively medicalizing them as soon as they became therapeutic. So we, we've now developed a, a kind of risk-benefit model um, for that process that's been a long process. We've probably our, our single most important piece of work is how we um, have been developing a model for community-based sustainability of health systems. So how you can actually take healthcare out of the confines of the kind of breakdown garages, repair garages of the acute medical system. Um, and, you know, currently the, the whole model is, is basically a, a reactive model that you do something when you see manifestation of disease and moving to a community-based model where you're going upstream and effectively, instead of just managing and treating disease, you are regenerating health. And it, it takes many of the sort of systems out of the regen ag movement. It's how you build a solid ecological terrain on which you can have um, healthy people. And in fact, the, the piece that we're just going to be releasing tonight um, through our, our website and, and through our list is how you apply the ecological, the 12 domain ecological terrain that, that is the sort of core of the model to the COVID situation. When I say the COVID situation, I don't just mean the virus. I mean, all of the stresses and all of the, you know, unemployment, polar, social polarization, disconnection, um, lack of future questions over meaning of life, which we know from the blue zone research is really important. So it's how you, how you look at a human being within a whole system, interactive ecological system. So, 
um, and, and we've, we've developed a, a, a whole series of, of ways in which you can assess function because, you, because you're not waiting for disease to happen when you have a proactive model. You, you're looking mm -hmm. at function. So um, you can look at function and stasis now using a range of biomedical tests, but also there are many proxies that cost no money because if you're going to have a solution that's genuinely sustainable, you have to be dealing with the most deprived populations where the burdens of chronic disease and even infectious disease are greatest. So um, some of the trials and studies that we want to carry out is really a horizontal validation of these proxy surrogate measures against the really hard biomedical tests um, so that we can you know, validate them. Um, well, if, you, if you look at the number of billed medical visits that people, how many times do people have to go to the doctor for a particular condition, as we did with the Vax-Unvax study, which ultimately was retracted because it was too dangerous. It's too dangerous because it should, you know, the next calculation is how much money are we wasting on these medical visits for asthma and other things that we can prevent, right? You're asking for trouble. You're asking, you're, you're taking on the 1,600-pound gorilla, which is allopathic medicine in the, in the United States. You know, it's huge business. It's like the number two employer in, in, in Pennsylvania. We have a, a massive, massive parasite on our back called allopathic medicine. If you break down the word allopathy, it means other disease. Right. So, doctor, I, I think I have this. No, I'm going to tell you, you might have something else and I'm going to give you a drug. And if that doesn't work, come back, we'll try another drug. And then, you know, that diagnosis by treatment is highly lucrative and delayed diagnosis because, well, there's, you know, there's billable tests after billable tests. You're taking on something that's huge with that because if you prevent an apple a day keeps the doctor away as long as it's grown the right way. Right. You're not going to keep people from having to seek medical care. You, know, you must be popular that, that, over there. Yeah, that, that, I think that's why the, the, the challenge that we face at the moment is actually something of a catalyst. It's a catalyst. We, we can look at it as a great problem, but um, as an obstacle, but it is really a catalyst. So what it's doing is, is bringing a whole bunch of us that have been working independently together. Yeah. So the, you know, the world Council for Health, which is worldcouncilforhealth.org, is an organization that's just about to, to launch, headed by, by someone we both know, uh, Dr. Tess Laurie, um, and Jennifer Hibbard from Canada. And it, it brings all of us who've been working separately under one roof. So again, you know, likely enough movement it is a movement of solidarity, but, but together, you know, we, we're going to be much more resilient, much more robust, much more capable of, um, you know, for example, you know, even, even acting as a body that, that can deliver ethics approvals. What, what, what we're finding in this area at the moment, if you want to study something that the allopathic system doesn't like, what they do is they just drag out for months and months and months mm -hmm. ethics approval. So you just can't get off the ground. Yeah. Whereas if you've got a, a panel of some of the you know, leading doctors and scientists from around the world who can act and give their own ethics approval, yeah. you can move forward. So, so there's many reasons. So I, I think this is, this is a kind of um, really the beginning of the end in a way. I, I am sufficiently convinced that the system that is now fighting for control 
is so dysfunctional at so many levels and is already starting to see failure, a little bit like a cornered rat. Um, so it will bite back and it will be dangerous and it you know, will draw blood. Yeah. But, but we have to hold firm. And the best way of doing that is by standing shoulder to shoulder in these great movements of solidarity. That's, that's how people generated changes always happened until we decide not to be divided and we come together. Um, you know, the, the, the process of division has been orchestrated by the other side, not by us. Um, so, so now we're organizing ourselves and starting to come together because we- These movements are so important. They're central to, to the future. The key, key to the success of the future. Uh, Robert, I'm so grateful to have spent this time and finally got to spend this time to know you, uh, get to know you better. Um, we're going to have you back again to go into detail on some of those things, especially in resilience uh, of systems and in the uh, ecosystem approach towards uh, to agriculture. Uh, I love it. Thank you. Uh, thanks for your great guest. It was great. nice having you. It's, it's been amazing talking to you, Jack. And, and um, I, I think, you know, sharing that sort of ecological understanding of, of, of the world um, and understanding the place of human beings in a much more complex ecosystem. I mean, it, it, it's extraordinary how anthropocentric human beings have become to see themselves divorced from that system and believing that they can separate themselves without consequence. And, um, and I think that is really where the rubber meets the road and probably where the biggest fundamental divide exists between the people who are pushing that agenda. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a false divide, right? Because in the end, you and I both know that nature is going to have the last laugh. No matter what that mm -hmm. laugh is or who's around to enjoy it, it's certainly not going to be a human being. So 100%. Yeah. Right All right, thanks so much. Thank you.